Last week when we began our study in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, we focused on the beginning part of the Gospel of Luke where after a brief introduction, he gives us the story of the miraculous conception of John the Baptist, how his father, Zacharias, and his mother, Elizabeth, were old, advanced in years, beyond the years of having children. They never had children during the years when they most likely could have children. But the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias while he was in the temple performing a once-in-a-lifetime priestly service, and he told Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and bring forth this man who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so we saw the very special way in which the forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, was conceived. Well, it shouldn't surprise us for a moment that if the forerunner has a miraculous conception, how much more should the Messiah himself have a miraculous conception? And that's what we see the story beginning with right here, uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning here at verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, by the way, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the mother of John the Baptist. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So we see that the angel Gabriel's work was not finished when he spoke to Uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, in the temple. His next assignment was to go now to Mary in the city of Nazareth, the city of Galilee. Now, this might interest you to know that chronologically, this is the very first mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Uh, Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned by the uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. It's never mentioned in uh, any of the apocryphal literature that was between the Testaments. If the city of Nazareth was remarkable for anything, it was remarkable for being absolutely unremarkable. It was an utterly nowheresville kind of place that nobody would take any pride in being from Nazareth. It's just not the kind of place that you proclaimed yourself as being from in any kind of proud way. But in this nowheresville kind of village in the region of Galilee, yet distant from the Sea of Galilee. It was some 15 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. It was six miles away from the nearest major road. This is where the angel Gabriel came and announced to Mary something very special that we'll take a look at in just a moment. Now, by the way, I should say this. Though this is the first mention of the city of Nazareth, it's not the last. And Jesus would forever be identified with the city of Nazareth. So much so that the most, I wouldn't say the most, maybe one of the most common names he was called by in the New Testament is Jesus of Nazareth. So much so that that title was placed above him on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so here this man identified with this city And this is where it all began when the angel Gabriel came and announced something to verse 27 to a virgin betrothed. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, this was not married yet, but it was somewhat more than what we normally think of as engagement. I know that today in the modern world, of course, couples are very hesitant to break an engagement. 
They feel like, look, if you're engaged to marry, well, then, you know, you want to go through with it. You don't want to be seen as the kind of person who makes an engagement and breaks it and that kind of thing. But sometimes you just know it's best. Look, it's better to break the engagement to go through with a marriage I don't want. Nevertheless, betrothal in the ancient world was even more binding than what we think of as engagement. Betrothal was so binding that even though the marriage ceremony had not yet been performed, and even though the marriage had not yet been consummated with the couple coming together in the marriage bed, even though that hadn't happened yet, a betrothal could only be broken by divorce. And this is how serious it was. So Mary was not married, but she was betrothed. But notice what it says about her twice in verse 27. The virgin's name was Mary. I was wondering in my own mind how much I should spend time on this hammer in this home. I don't know if there's much debate in your minds about this idea of the virgin birth. Uh, Some years ago, some decades ago, in the middle of the 20th century and even before that, it, it was almost in vogue among Christians to question or to doubt the virgin birth, to act as if it was an optional sort of doctrine. That Mary really wasn't a virgin and really the ancient Hebrew word that's translated virgin, Alma, is actually can be translated young woman. So all it was saying, blah, 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 blah. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever the ancient Hebrew word might be translated, the Greek word that's translated here in the New Testament is unambiguous. It means that Mary was a virgin. She had never had sexual relations with a man. And that's exactly what the angel was speaking about. He came to this woman who it's twice said in verse 27, the virgin's name was Mary. Now verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. In our minds, we think that Mary must have been in prayer when the angel Gabriel came. Look, not necessarily. The text doesn't say that. She could have been doing a crossword puzzle for all we know. She could have been, you know, working or that, but she might have been in prayer. We don't know. But her otherwise normal day was radically interrupted by an angelic vision. And remember, this angelic vision by Gabriel, not just any angel, but Gabriel who stands at the right hand of God the Father. This man, Gabriel, this angel, I should say, Gabriel comes in this dramatic, compelling appearance. And the angel said to her three things. You're highly favored. The Lord is with you and you're blessed. Now, those are wonderful things to say about anybody, isn't it? Mary, you. You are highly favored. Mary, you have a unique sense that the presence of the Lord is with you. Mary, you are blessed in a unique way. And indeed, she would be blessed. Because if you think about it, Mary had a singular honor that has been given to any person. Of course, I mean women as a subset of it, but of any person. Only a woman could bear the Messiah, period. But only one woman in all of human history could have this privilege of being the mother of the Messiah. Ever since God promised in Genesis chapter 3 that the seed of the woman would rise up and would bruise and would crush the serpent's head, all of history had been waiting for who this deliverer would be and from whom he would come. Eve thought it would be her. She really did. 
When the Lord God made that promise, which some people call the first stating of the gospel in the entire book, in the entire Bible, this, this entry in the book of Genesis where God promised that the seed of the woman would come forth and crush the head of the serpent. His own heel would be bruised. He would be wounded, so to speak, but he would deliver this death blow to Satan. When Eve heard that promise with Adam beside her, when she conceived and bore a child, she named him Cain, which roughly means this is the one. This is the man. She thought that he would be the one. Cain turned out to be a profound disappointment, to say the least. But all throughout the centuries before that, this longing, this expectation, who would the Messiah be? Whom would he come from? Now has been answered in this one young woman, Mary. Now, we often talk about Mary. We talk about what age she could have been, what her circumstances were. You know, it's difficult to say. I've heard some people say that Mary was as young as 13 or 14 or 15. Well, maybe. It's a little hard to say. I mean, it certainly would not have been strange for a girl at that time to have been married at about 15 years of age. So maybe you could put in your mind that somewhere she was between the ages of 15 and 20. We just don't know for sure. But, uh, you know, an older teen, perhaps. And the angel appears to her, gives her this dramatic greeting. And now, and now says to her, you're highly favored. The Lord is with you and you're blessed. Now, I don't blame some of you for maybe being a little bit jealous of Mary. You go, wow, I wish I had that. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have it in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, when the angel Gabriel said to Mary, you're highly favored, that ancient Greek word that's translated highly favored there is used one other time in the entire New Testament. It's used in the book of Ephesians and it's applied to the believer. And it means basically, if you remember your Roman Catholic prayers, right? Come on, say it along with me if you know it. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord. Highly favored is actually keritu, which means full of grace. The believer is full of grace. Mary was full of grace. The believer has Jesus with them in a remarkable way. Mary had Jesus with her in a remarkable way. The believer is blessed. Mary was blessed. And just as much as Mary carried Jesus within her physically, so the believer carries Jesus within them, spiritually speaking. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is our ground. Mary is, lives on this exalted ground of being the singular person who was given the privilege of bearing the Messiah. But we share, at least a little bit, by spiritual analogy, in that same blessing that she had. So it's no wonder, as it says there in verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. This shows something of the humility of Mary. She understood what a big thing he was talking about, and she was humbled. She didn't think, well, yeah, it's about time somebody noticed what a godly young woman I am. No, her immediate reaction is, whoa, why me? Why would you say such a thing to me? This is such a strange experience. Verse 30, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of His kingdom there will be no end. Now I love this, because almost immediately the angel Gabriel takes the focus off Mary and he puts it on Jesus. Mary, you are favored. Mary, the Lord is with you. Mary, you are blessed. But that's not the most important thing about this, Mary. The most important thing is this son that will be conceived miraculously inside you. A son will be given and you'll name him Jesus. By the way, just so you know, Jesus was a fairly common name in first century Judaism. It wasn't like some special unique name. And it is, of course the Greek rendering or phrasing of the ancient Hebrew name Joshua or Yehosha. That's the simple idea. There, Yeshua, that idea that this is Jesus, Jesus a fairly common name. But I love what Gabriel said about him in verse 32. Did you notice the first thing he says about Jesus? He will be great. He will be great. Do you understand how this has been so actually fulfilled that no one in history has ever influenced the course of human events the way that Jesus Christ has? Well, I'm not saying that men like uh, Buddha and uh, Muhammad and the rest of them have no impact. Of course, they've had their impact on the human race. But nobody has had the impact that Jesus Christ has And even to this day, there are millions upon millions of people in the world that would gladly die for His glory, gladly die for His honor. He will be great, and He has been made great in this world. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said this, Is it not proven that He is great? Conquerors are great, and He is the greatest of them. Deliverers are great, and He is the greatest of them. Liberators are great, and He is the greatest of them. Saviors are great, and He is the greatest of them. You could say that Jesus is great in the perfection of His nature. Jesus is great in the grandeur of His offices, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is great in what He has achieved. Jesus is great in the numbers of those that He rescues. And Jesus is great in the estimation and in the praise of His people. He will be great And, verse 32, he will be called the son of the highest. Now this is a very important phrase, because by this Gabriel was telling Mary something essential, that this man, this boy that will be born from you, not only will he be your son, Mary, but he'll also be the son of the highest. He will be the son of God. And to drive the point home, he adds it in verse 32, saying, The throne of his father, David, he will receive that. He will be the Messiah prophesied to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, who has the rightful authority over Israel and of his kingdom. Friends, don't miss that line in verse 33. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Sometimes when we're talking about biblical prophecy, and I love to talk about biblical prophecy, but sometimes when we talk about biblical prophecy, we talk about something we call the millennium. We talk about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And I believe in the millennium, and I believe that there are a thousand years specially appointed in God's eternal plan for Him to accomplish some things. But we don't want to give anybody the idea that Jesus' reign is limited to a thousand years. He shall reign, as it says in first handle, Messiah, whatever. He shall reign forever and ever. Isn't that true of our Lord? As it says, of His kingdom there will be no end. So he says here in verse 31, back just a couple verses, 
you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. Now we're going to find out in just a few verses that Mary was a very biblically literate young woman. Mary knew her Old Testament. Therefore, I believe that when the angel Gabriel said this, when he said, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, she recognized that he was using the phrasing from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that says, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. He's using that same phrase because he wants you to know, Mary, you're the one. You're the one that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7. You're the virgin who will conceive and bear forth the Son, the one who will be the Son of the Highest. Could you imagine such an experience? It's very hard for us to even get a grasp on this mentally, isn't it? But look at Mary's response. I think it's rather wonderful. Verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? I mean, look, she knew biology. She knew how babies were made. And she's just asking a very frank question. I've never known a man intimately. How can this be? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. So she asked the same question in a sense that Zechariah's act in the temple. Uh, Zechariah's one to know in the temple. How is this going to be? My wife is old. Mary asked the same thing. But isn't it interesting? Gabriel didn't strike her mute. Apparently, there was a completely different attitude of heart with, the which, with which Mary asked this question. How can this be? This is a wonder. I know how biology works. This doesn't fit in with everything I've ever heard, everything I've ever known of. And so he explains, and look at these words carefully in verse 35, where Gabriel says, the power of the highest will overshadow you. Gabriel answered Mary's question by explaining this that the power of the highest in the person of the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary. Now that word, overshadow, literally means to cover with a cloud. And almost certainly it has in mind the Old Testament idea of the cloud of God's glory, which is often called the Shekinah. And you find this phenomenon throughout the pages of the Old Testament, that when God wanted to manifest His glory in a certain way at the temple, during the Exodus, at a time of sacrifice, when God wanted to manifest His glory in a special way, He would descend as in a cloud. And this cloud would overshadow Mary and miraculously in her womb. And I don't know how to explain it other than to say that that Mary supplied the egg for fertilization and God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, I should say instead, overshadowed her and miraculously, without any sexual contact, fertilized that egg and she conceived in her womb. You could say that that cloud 
was a visible manifestation of the glory and the presence of God, meaning that the same power of God that was with Moses, the same power of God that was there at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the same power of God that was manifest throughout the Old Testament was now going to do a very powerful and unique work in the life of Mary. And by the way, I should say this, that the very... I don't know how to say it other than tasteful and delicate phrasing here. It completely eliminates any of the crude ideas that some people have said that somehow God came down in human form. And I even shudder to say these words. But the, the, the idea that God came down in human form and somehow had sex with Mary. It's completely ruled out by this. That's such a pagan idea found in some of the pagan conceptions of Zeus and this God and that God. It has nothing to do with the Christian idea of how Mary miraculously conceived, which was truly a virginal conception. Now, by the way, if I should say this, we speak a little bit sloppy when we speak about these things. And what I mean by sloppiness is we usually use the term virgin birth. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was born just like any other baby. The, the, Jesus came down the birth canal and, and, and was birthed out of Mary's body just like any other baby's born. It wasn't his birth that was so remarkable. It was what? It was his conception in the womb. If we really wanted to speak with great technical precision, we wouldn't speak so much about the virgin birth, but we would talk about the virgin conception of Mary. But notice this, verse 35, the angel Gabriel mentioned that holy one who is to be born. Because this would be the manner of his conception, he would be the holy one, different from all others. And then this great verse in verse 35, notice it carefully, that he would be called the son of God. Now, I don't know if that impact, he will be called the son of God would have much impact on you, but I bet it floored Mary. Because what she understood is that she wasn't just going to give birth to some great prophet or, or, or spokesman or, or great man of God. She would be giving birth to someone who would be God himself. Because in the Hebraic way of thinking, to call something a son of God was to equate it with God himself. Mary and everybody from her culture knew that this would be a being equal to God. And that the Son of God would be born from Mary. What an amazing thing in Mary's mind. That she would give birth to the God-man. Well, would such a thing seem unbelievable? I, I wouldn't fault Mary at all for thinking it to be a bit unbelievable. So what did Gabriel do? Gabriel gave her an assurance of faith right away. Now, you know, we, our, our minds can't resist speculating a bit, can they not? When did this actually happen in Mary? When did she conceive? When did the cloud of God's glory overshadow her and she conceived? Did it happen right then when Gabriel was speaking? Maybe. All we know is that soon she visited Elizabeth and Elizabeth would know that Mary was already pregnant. So it seemed to happen soon. But as you know, and believe me, I'm a man, I'm no expert in women's pregnancies. But when a woman is pregnant, it isn't necessarily immediately apparent. And so how would Mary know? How would she know until it was biologically certain that she was pregnant? Gabriel says, I'll tell you how you know. Verse 36, 
Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. Here's evidence. Listen, if Elizabeth could get pregnant, Mary, then you could get pregnant in this way that I've mentioned. Why? Verse 37, For with God nothing shall be impossible. More literally, you could translate that phrase, For no word of God shall be powerless. God will absolutely perform that which He promised. So what an amazing promise Gabriel makes to Mary. You picture this scene in your mind, you wonder how could she ever reply to this. Mary gives just such the pitch-perfect reply. She is such a model of the believer in verse 38. Look at it right here. Then Mary said, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that beautiful? I like the end phrase there. The angel departed from her. It's like Gabriel said, listen, with that kind of response, nothing more for me to do here. She's received it with such faith, with such assurance. I have nothing more to say here. Bye, I'm going back to heaven. My work is done. But notice her reply. First of all, she says, behold, the maid servant of the Lord. The first thing that she did was she agreed with what Gabriel said about her. She was the maidservant of the Lord, and it wasn't her position to debate. Okay, great. If this is what it is, then I receive it gladly. And then she adds on there into verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. Ladies and gentlemen, is that not the proper response of every believer to every promise of God? God, let it be to me according to your word. You promise me peace, let it be to me according to your word. You promise me power, let it be to me according to your word. You, you promise me deliverance in a time of temptation, let it be to me according to your word. Now all of that took a great deal of trust for Mary to perform. I wonder if we really think about what it was like for Mary to embrace this, for Mary to open up her wa- arms and say, yes, Lord, I receive this. Yes, Lord, do this in my life. In a moment, she subjected herself to an entire life of whispers behind her back and misunderstandings and rumors and accusations. Friends, you know how those things can just pierce through your soul. And if that wasn't bad enough, to live with that constant cloud of suspicion over your life the whole day. Because you know what the rumors were? You know the rumors they spread about Jesus? That his father was actually a Roman soldier who raped Mary. That's the lie that they said about Jesus back in the day. Well, it was a lie. Luke tells us the actual account of what happened. But Mary had to know from the very beginning she would have to be assaulted by such lies, by such slander her whole life. But let me tell you, I think in a small sense, that was the smallest part of Mary's pain. You want to talk about pain? Mary was present at the cross. Mary saw them do that, not only to the Messiah, not only to the Son of God, not not only to the man who taught things that had never been taught before, and the man who had never sinned or wronged anybody, not only did you see them do it all that, she saw them do that to her son. That's why later, the prophet Simeon is going to say to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
let us just remind us, wherever there's great privilege given spiritually, there's great burden given. There is. It's not all peaches and cream. There's a burden somewhere. And those who have been given some great privilege in life or spiritually, you may look at them and it may seem like like they have no burden to bear from it. Don't believe it. If they do it well, they do it like a good professional athlete. You know, uh, uh, the, the greatest athletes have a way of doing what they do in a way that makes it look easy. You, you watch them, you, you watch that brilliant center fielder chase down the fly ball and make a catch. And you look at it and you go, man, I could do that. Look at him. It didn't look so hard. Oh yeah, why don't you get out there on the field with a glove? You'll, you'll injure yourself and somebody else. I can't tell you whether or not Mary made it look easy or hard. But I can tell you this. This woman who was given a gift that no other person ever had been given, this woman who had been given a privilege that no other woman had been given, she bore a price that no other person has ever borne other than herself as well. Well, we move on here. On to verse 39. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Now Mary is very young in her pregnancy, a matter of weeks. It would have taken her three or four days to go from Galilee down to Judea in the hill country and meet up with her, well, it says relative. We don't know exactly what the relationship was between Elizabeth and Mary. Lots of people say cousins, and maybe it was one of those third cousins, second removed kind of things that confuses me to all pieces, but they're relatives in some way. She comes and she meets her, and as they give this greeting, she just knew that she had to connect with her. Mary properly understood that that not many people could could understand and experience what Gabriel promised her and and all the consequences from it. If anybody could understand what she's going through, it would be Elizabeth herself. So can you just picture this scene in her mind? She comes in, and as soon as the two meet, as soon as she sees her, what happens inside her? of Elizabeth, the baby, the, the, the sixth, seventh month old, however long the pregnancy was at that point, leapt in her womb. John the Baptist, he just started kicking and leaping and just praising God in the womb. Why? Because Jesus, not even showing. I mean, listen, Jesus, boy, it, it feels strange to speak this way. But if we take the incarnation seriously, we need to speak this way. Jesus, very small in the womb of Jesus. Excuse me, in the womb of Mary. Very small in Mary's womb. That was enough. And John the Baptist rejoiced and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look, you want to get excited about something? If John the Baptist got this stoked at seeing Jesus, when he couldn't see him at all, Just being around Jesus that close. Imagine how excited you're going to be when you finally make it to heaven and see Jesus. Isn't that great? Don't you think you're going to do a little bit of leaping? You're going to do a little bit of jumping? Just imagine if John the Baptist got this happy just being this close to Jesus. Imagine how happy you're going to be on that day when you're united with your Savior. 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, continuing on, verse 42. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, now this is what Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt, leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now, John the Baptist had not yet been born. Jesus had barely been conceived in the womb of... I need to clarify something just so everybody understands it. And I, I apologize for not saying this before. Maybe it comes in a little bit unnatural moment. You do understand that Jesus existed before he was conceived in the womb of Mary. Jesus existed as the second person of the Trinity from all of eternity past. God the Son his going forths are from everlasting. So Jesus existed from all of eternity past. But at this moment when He was conceived in the womb of Mary, in some way that we can barely comprehend, humanity was added to the deity and Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. When we talk about the incarnation, the, the, the becoming of flesh of the second person of the Trinity, God becoming man, I'll just give you a very handy way to think of it. I, I know it's theological shorthand, but look, that's what we're doing right now. The incarnation was not subtraction. Nothing was taken away from God the Son. Rather, it was addition. Humanity was added to deity and submitted Himself to be conceived in a virgin's womb and to grow in that womb and to be born just like you and I so that there would be at the right hand of God the Father someone who knows exactly what our human experience is like and who has identified with us on every point. Okay, I'm sorry for not making that clear before. Verse 42 Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now look at what Elizabeth says in verse 43. She calls Jesus in the womb of Mary, the mother of my Lord. Well, that conceived child in Mary's womb, she's not, she doesn't even got the baby bump yet. That's my Lord in the womb. That's the one for whom my son, John the Baptist, will be the forerunner. And that's why she says, verse 45, Blessed is he who she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things. Elizabeth recognized that Mary's faith played an active role in receiving the promise. God's promises never make us passive. But no, she says, Elizabeth said to Mary, you believe this promise, you grabbed hold of it. When God gives you a promise, it isn't to make you passive or fatalistic. It's that you can seize upon it by faith. And Elizabeth praised Mary for doing just that. Now, verse 46, Mary's great song of praise to the Lord. Here we go. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. 
Uh, by the way, I, I'll get into the rest of it there. I just want to pause right there. Isn't that beautiful? By the way, we usually call this song, if theology, we call it the Magnificent, based on the first few words in the Latin text of this. My soul magnifies the Lord. Isn't that wonderful to think that Mary, very properly, when she had been given this tremendous blessing, this tremendous well, let's just say it, exaltation. Hasn't Mary been lifted up here at, a, at an amazing place? Privileged among all women. Mary's been lifted up to this place. And what's her first instinct to do? She says, I'm going to magnify the Lord. Not, woo, I want it. Hey, look at me. Ooh, take that, all the other women in the world. Nothing like that. There's no thought that it's any glory to Mary. What is it? My soul magnifies the Lord. And let me just apply. I'll go back and read it again. We'll start and read the whole song together. But I just want to nail down that one point. Listen, I'm looking out tonight. You're a bunch of blessed people. God has blessed you. I mean, some of you, God is very obviously blessed. He's blessed you with gifts. He's blessed you with talents. He's blessed you with health. He's blessed you with intelligence, with family. He's blessed you with resources. He's blessed you beyond all that. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are a blessed people. And your immediate reaction with all that God has given you and done in your life should be, my soul magnifies the Lord. Not, yeah, God, I'm glad you got around to seeing what an amazing person I am and giving to me some of what I have. No! How about this? My soul magnifies the Lord. Right, let's start again. I'll read the whole thing. I promise I won't take another break. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For who, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servants Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Mary rejoiced. Now, by the way, verse 47, I rejoice, my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. Listen, you, you notice that I've been speaking in such high terms of Mary tonight, and I think deservedly so. I don't think I've been speaking out of scriptural bounds at all about Mary. But I have to acknowledge, and, and I don't mean to, to pick on any particular Christian group or denomination or anything like that, but I do have to say, I, I think we're all aware that Mary has been over-exalted in many circles. That Mary has been lifted and put upon a pedestal that not even she would receive. That, that, that Mary, it, it has been said by, her, by, by Christian theology and tradition, not by the Bible, that Mary herself was sinless. That Mary herself was conceived without sin and without original sin, if you want to use that phrase. That she had an immaculate conception is the theological phrase applied to that. Ladies and gentlemen, all I can say, Mary knew she needed a Savior. 
Mary knew that very deeply. And can you imagine how mind-blowing it was for her to know that the baby within her womb would be her Savior? She needed a Savior. A blessed woman, a unique woman, a remarkably believing woman, a, a woman for us to learn from? Absolutely. A mediator between God and man? Never. Someone that we should go to instead of Jesus? Never. But no, Mary knows it right. She needed a Savior. And so she exalts the Lord and the mighty things He had done. Verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. That that, that song celebrates God's goodness, His faithfulness, and His power. Mary's song shows the futility of trusting in self, in trusting in political power, in trusting in riches. Mary's trust was in the Lord and it was rewarded. So, now we come to verse 57 and the account of John the Baptist's birth. We went through this last uh, week when we talked about John the Baptist and his conception and birth. So I'm just going to read these verses and continue on through. Verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he should be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. We talked about that last week. I love that. Treating him as if he were deaf. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, let's just take a quick look at this last section of the chapter where, is it kind of interesting, the parallels here? Um, John the Baptist has his miraculous conception, and he also has a, uh, his miraculous birth. Jesus has his miraculous conception. Next week, we're going to see his miraculous birth. Then as well, uh, Mary has her song. Now it's time for Zacharias' song, verse 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew 
and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation in Israel. Listen, I just want to make a little contrast or comparison between Mary's song and Zacharias' song. First thing, we're not told specifically that Mary spoke by being filled with the Spirit and prophetic utterance. As it said very clearly here of Zacharias in verse 67, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. By the way, you could say that is the renewal of the prophetic voice after 400 years of silence. It's been 400 years since that prophetic voice has come back. And now God says, here we go again. Here comes my forerunner. The Messiah is to come. Let's bring it all up again. So that's one contrast. Secondly, I want you to notice that both of them, by comparison, both are focused on Jesus. If you notice Zechariah's song, first he speaks about Jesus, then he speaks about his own son. That's a glorious focus. What I really want you to notice is that even though Mary's song is not said to be the direct result of the filling of the Holy Spirit in a prophetic word, what's beautiful about Mary's song, it is drenched with Scripture. If you want a little homework assignment for this week, go home, take out your Bible search program, whatever you use, and you search for all the Old Testament phrasing that's found in Mary's magnificent And you'll see something. This was a young woman who loved the Word of God. She knew how to praise God and to speak with biblical language. No wonder she was so blessed. Now, I'm not saying that God chose her just because of that. But I'm saying it's a reflection of what a godly woman that Mary was. She knew the Word of God She loved the Word of God. It's as if, and I'm going to paraphrase an old commentator where he said, it's like the library of Jesus was inside of her heart. And she was able just to open it up and praise Him with the vocabulary and the phrasing of the Old Testament. Now, you'll find some of that in Zechariah's, but it's so much more thick and deep in Mary's utterance. Well, you should anticipate that there's going to be a spectacular birth to this son that was conceived in Mary's womb. That's what we're going to come to next time. Father, we thank you. And I, I just want to pray pointedly, Lord, for those among us. You have spoken to them a promise. They've read it in your word. They've cherished it in their heart. Lord, we just want to say what Mary said. Lord, let it be to me according to your word. That's our heart. That's our vision. We're amazed, Lord, that there is a real sense in which Jesus is born in us. Even as he was conceived in Mary. So Jesus, you in us the hope of glory. Give us the faith to grab hold of your promise and to believe it and receive it for each individual life at each individual need. In Jesus' name, amen.